Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, September 22nd. I'm your host, Mike Maharin. Thanks for tuning in. So, the Fed is saying one thing, but it's left the door open to do whatever. That's how central banking works. It takes quite a while for the impacts of their actual policies, the ones that they implement, it takes a while for those to manifest in the economy. I talked about that last week when I explained how the economy is in a slow burn. But the things that Powell and company say have an immediate impact on the markets. You know, we saw another big sell-off in stocks and bonds on Thursday after this week's FOMC meeting. Silver and gold also fell predictably with the hawkish rhetoric that came out of the meeting. The crazy thing is, is what the Fed says today has virtually no correlation with what they do tomorrow. And if you listen closely to the official messaging, it's pretty clear they speak in such a way as to allow them to plausibly do anything at all and then say, yeah, that's what we said we were going to do. That's because despite all of the word salad, they aren't really saying anything. And yet we see the markets reacting as if, you know, you're getting stone tablets off of Mount Sinai or something. So, you know, I guess it really just comes down to perception. What do the markets perceive that the Fed's next move will be? That's really what is driving the markets right now. The problem is the perception right now has virtually no connection with reality. So let's dig into the September FOMC meeting. And, you know, by the way, every once in a while, somebody will complain that I talk too much about the Fed on this podcast. After all, it's not the Friday Fed wrap. And I get that to some degree. But it should be clear that the central bank is the bigger player or the biggest player in the markets, and that includes the gold and silver market. What the Fed people say and do drive the markets in the short term, and their real actions, or inactions as the case may be, have an oversized impact on the trajectory of the economy. So really, if if you were to ask me, the biggest driver in the U.S. economy and in the U.S. financial markets is the Federal Reserve and their monetary policy, right? It's monetary policy, I, I should say, to use proper English. But, I mean, think about it. When you look at market analysis, whether it's stocks or bonds or gold and silver, people pay very little attention to the fundamentals. Like last week, I talked about some of the fundamentals in the silver market. People aren't paying attention to that. By and large, the silver market is being driven by monetary policy and perceptions about the economy. So, it's all about the Fed. That's because the entire economy has been bastardized to run on easy money. The Fed is the institution that giveth and taketh away the monetary heroin. If the markets think they're going to get their fix, they rally. If they think the pusher's going to get stingy, they tank. I mean, that's what happened this week, right? With the hawkish talk, the Fed gave the impression that it's going to continue to be stingy with the monetary heroin, so the market swooned. Of course, economics eventually catches up, always. 
That's what happened after COVID, right? All of the monetary stimulus manifested as price inflation. Now, of course, a lot of that monetary stimulus is still circulating around in the economy, despite the Fed rate hikes and balance sheet reductions. I mean, it hasn't even gotten a quarter of the COVID QE off its balance sheet yet. I think that's part of the reason the economy still maintains the illusion of health, uh, of being robust, because there's still plenty of monetary stimulus out there in the economy. You know, there was an unprecedented amount of stimulus, and, and even going before COVID, right? We can go back to after the 2008 financial crisis with three rounds of QE uh, that preceded the crash, and then uh, a decade plus of artificially low 0% interest rates. That blew up really big bubbles. But eventually, they're going to pop. I mean, they look good now. They're pretty. You know, they're floating around up there. They're big and they're shiny. Got all them colors floating around in them. But bubbles always pop. And these bubbles are no exception. And because they're so big, the pop is going to be quite significant. And of course, when that happens, the Fed is going to go back to creating inflation. It's going to go back to rate cuts. It's going to go back to QE because that's how the Fed rolls. That's what history tells us. Now, they could surprise us, right? I mean, Powell could stick to his guns. We could have a big stock market crash or a big financial crisis or something. And, and Powell could say, no, inflation is still too high. We're not going to cut rates. We're not going to do the, the QE. He could do that. I don't think so. There's no reason to believe that he would. There's no reason to think that any of these Fed people are wired that way. So that's why I keep saying that the Fed has lost the inflation fight. I mean, it may look like price inflation is on the run, you know, depending on how you choose to parse the data. But no matter what the Fed people are saying today, they will act much differently when the poo hits the proverbial fan and the poo is coming. So anyway, again, after my little uh, side talk there, let's, let's go ahead and dig into the FOMC meeting. As I, write, uh, as I wrote in an article over at shiftgold.com slash news, as you digest this most recent Fed meeting, it's important to remember that there, there's a big difference between saying things and doing things, right? So what did the central bank actually do? Well, nothing. Rates were unchanged. It made no policy changes whatsoever. But of course, Powell and company had plenty to say. The committee indicated that it plans to hold rates higher for longer than originally projected, and it also projected at least one more rate hike this year. Now, there weren't really any surprises. There certainly were no surprises in terms of policy, right? A surprise would have been if uh, the Fed had suddenly hiked rates, you know, another 25 basis points, or if they had cut rates, that would be a surprise. But there were no surprises. The Fed did exactly what everybody expected the Fed would do, which is generally what happens, right? They signal enough and, and posture enough leading up to these meetings so that everybody pretty much knows what's going to happen. And they do that on purpose because they want the adjustment to that policy to be slow and easy. Um, so the FOMC was widely expected to stand pat this month. And the question that everybody was asking before the Fed meeting was, how will the central bankers proceed in the months ahead? What are they going to communicate about the path forward? And based on projections released after the meeting, the Fed is leaning toward keeping monetary policy restrictive for longer. 
That's the talking point anyway. As a Reuters article put it, the Fed stiffened its hawkish stance. Sounds very British. They stiffened their stance. So, when you dig into the official FOMC statement, it was virtually identical to the one they issued after the July meeting. And, and that's why I say, you know, from an, on an official level, they, they, they phrase things so that they don't really, it's, it's word salad, right? It's like, what does this really mean? Nothing. Um, it was the same blah, blah, blah about continuing to assess additional information. And that's just Fed speak for we're data dependent. In other words, we'll do virtually anything in the future depending on how we decide to spend the economic data. In reality, they're not being hawkish. They're being non-committal. If you actually listen to what they say and, and take the perceptions out of it, if you, if you just look at the words, they're just non-committal. They may raise rates. They may keep rates higher or longer. That's kind of what they're indicating, but they may not. I mean, Powell even kind of tried to roll back the idea of a soft landing a little bit in his post-meeting press conference, despite the fact that they keep talking about how robust the economy is and, and, and you know, putting out projections that show uh, pretty decent economic growth for the next two years. So, you know, everything is just sufficiently vague to justify anything in hindsight. It's really politics at its finest. These guys and gals are they're really more politicians than they are bankers, right? I mean, we like to think they're they're these economic gurus who sit above the fray. Nah, they're politicians and, and they speak uh, in a political language and they do political stuff. So during his uh, post-meeting gab session uh, press conference, uh, Jerome Powell said the committee is, quote, in a position to proceed carefully in determining the extent of additional policy firming. Now, what the hell does that mean? It means we might firm policy more, but we need to proceed carefully, so we might not. So again, we can do whatever. But he also said the committee members would like to see more progress in its inflation fight. And this is where it kind of gets hawkish. He said, quote, we want to see convincing evidence, really, that we have reached the appropriate level. And we're seeing progress, and we welcome that. But, you know, we need to see more progress before we'll be willing to reach that conclusion. So he really wants you to think that we're not done, right? Inflation isn't beat. He wants to, he wants to keep that perception out there. Now, as I discussed last week when I talked about the August CPI data, it really looks more like disinflation was transitory, right? I, 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 yeah, there's progress, but you know, there's kind of not progress, too. I mean, CPI went up, you know, when you, when you boil it all down. Now, you know, they're going to point at core. You can spin it. You know, we can say price inflation is coming down because we're going to look at core. But I went to the gas station this week. Prices are not coming down for me. I mean, I know gas prices don't really count. Again, I need to look at the core CPI. Unfortunately, my bank account doesn't give a flying you-know-what about how propagandists spend data. You know, it, it, my, my checking account doesn't care that food and energy prices are volatile, so the, the policymakers like to leave it out of the inflation data. It, it, it's, the effect on me is the same, regardless of how... The Fed people spin it. Speaking of that, Paul Krugman, this dude, 
he wrote a piece for the New York Times in op-ed. And basically, he said that all of us dumb rubes out here in, in the heartland complaining about rising prices, we, we just don't get it. Inflation isn't bad at all. Gas and food don't count, right? I, I really think the best response to Paul Krugman is the middle finger. And speaking of Krugman, Peter Schiff actually challenged to him, uh, challenged him to a debate on Twitter. Now, Krugman won't take that because he doesn't debate people. Uh, he likes to sit in his cushy office uh, at the New York Times and collect a big paycheck for uh, churning out uh, basically uh, – you know, official propaganda. Um, but after the CPI data came out, uh, the political hack, or I mean economist, he claimed that the inflation war was over and he ran a victory lap because uh, the Fed won. Now, Peter Schiff in a tweet said he agrees, yeah, the war is over, but the Fed did not win. Inflation did. I'll, I'll link to an article in the show notes about that um, that you can check out. Anyway, sorry, I keep getting sidetracked. Um, I have a sinus infection and an ear infection, and my doctor put me on prednisone to get some of that um, inflammation down. Uh, for folks who don't know, that's a steroid. And it does not have a good effect on me. I feel like a chainsaw that's buzzing, uh, like overly jittery, and I can't focus on anything. Um so, yeah, I'm kind of all over the place, you know. Oh, this squirrel. So, I apologize for that, but, you know, it is what it is. We have to, sometimes we have to play hurt here on the uh, Friday Gold Rap podcast. Um, so, anyway, like I said, let's, uh, let's focus back on the meeting. Now, while there were not any surprises in terms of policy or really anything interesting in the official rhetoric, the so-called dot plot that uh, is released by the committee, it was slightly more hawkish than the one that was released after the June meeting. So this dot plot is basically uh, all of the members kind of put on this plot where they think interest rates are going to be like at the end of this year and then in two years and one year. Uh, it kind of gives you a sense of how they're projecting interest rates to move. So, looking at the dot plot, 12 FOMC members indicated that they expect one additional rate hike this year. Uh, there were seven who did not indicate any more uh, rate hikes at all. Um, meanwhile, the committee members projected two rate cuts in 2024. Now, I think that's interesting. Uh, and that's actually two fewer than was in the June forecast. And remember, when you start cutting rates... Basically, what you're doing is you're loosening monetary policy, right? You're, you're, you're allowing for the creation of more money, particularly in credit. Um, and so, this is like monetary stimulus. It is creating inflation. And I keep saying this. I can't emphasize this enough. What the Fed and the, the mainstream is calling a victory over inflation really means a return to creating inflation, so that's why I keep saying they're not going to win this inflation fight because winning just means more inflation. They're going to go back to the policy that got us here to begin with. So, you know, it seems like kind of a hollow victory to me, but what do I know? Um, so, like I said, there's uh, two fewer uh, rate cuts uh, that would be forecast for next year. If this projection holds, that would put interest rates around 5.1% at the end of 2024. So still, 
in the big scheme of things, in this economic environment, still very high interest rates being projected at the end of next year. Over the longer term, the FOMC members project rates to come in at around 2.9% all the way up in, in 2026. So almost 3% interest rates. Now remember, we just came through more than a decade of zero. And they're talking about only getting back to three in 2026. That date, it's not going to happen. Anyway, um, I thought this was interesting. Powell actually implied that the Fed isn't really worried about persistent price inflation. I really think that they believe that they've got the inflation whipped, right? Uh, they're done. They, they've got this under control. Yeah, maybe we need another rate hike. Maybe we'll have to keep rates higher. But I think in their heart of hearts, they think they think inflation is done. Remember, they also thought inflation was transitory. So, you know, there's that. But the thing that Powell hinted that is driving this more hawkish attitude is actually the strong economy. In fact, the, the Fed people are really bullish on the economy. The FOMC statement said, quote, the committee characterized economic activity as expanding at a solid pace. And I was actually more emphatic uh, than in the last policy statement. Uh, the Fed actually upped its economic forecast significantly. It's now projecting GDP to increase by 2.1% this year. That's more than double the 1% estimate that they gave us in June. And uh, they do expect growth to slow in 2024, but still uh, 1.5% next year. Uh, they had projected 1.1% in June, so they're, they're looking at next year being stronger in terms of economic growth. And any talk of a recession, completely out of the discussion. A soft landing it is. Now, I keep reminding y'all of this, but everything looked fine in early 2007. You know, again, there is always a big lag between monetary policy and its impact on the economy. In the microwave world we live in, in the world of 30-second sound bites, everybody expects the Fed to hike rates today and something to happen tomorrow. And if nothing happens tomorrow, then everybody's like, oh, we'll see, hiking rates didn't matter, not a problem. The Fed had already hit the top of its hiking cycle and was cutting rates long before the financial crisis. That's important to remember. So if you look at, you know, if you want to compare the two, and I, I understand you can't perfectly compare two different eras. There's a lot of different dynamics. But just considering the, the kind of where we are in the rate hiking cycle, we're still at about like 2006 in terms of a comparison to the 2008 financial crisis era. That's when they actually hit peak rate hikes, and then they started cutting. And again, uh, they, they were cutting long before the financial crisis. It took a while for all of this to unravel. That's the way it works. So to expect a recession you know, to be happening now, uh, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I mean, I jumped the gun too. I get impatient. It's just the way we are in 2023. But things play out slowly. You know, they happen slowly and then all at once, as the, as the saying goes. So anyway, with everybody all geeked up about the strong economy, Powell said, quote, broadly, stronger activity, meaning economic activity, that means we have to do more with rates. And that's what the meeting is telling you. So Powell's basically saying, 
not really worried about inflation. We're worried about this this booming economy, and you know that that means we need higher rates. That's what this meeting is telling you. Uh, this meeting ain't telling you crap, but whatever. You know, <laughs> okay, Jay, you're telling us a lot of stuff, but again, saying ain't doing. Um, Powell and company say they will raise rates one more time, and they say they're going to leave rates higher for longer. Well, you know, it's easy to say crap. Actually, doing crap is a more difficult prospect. In fact, the Fed's track record at projecting the trajectory of interest rates is, the best word for it is abysmal. The central bankers would seriously be better off, they'd be more accurate if they just threw darts at a dartboard. You know, they could they could go down, I don't know how much a dartboard costs, but you know, they go down to the, the store, buy them a dartboard, get them a set of darts, throw the darts, that would be more accurate than the projections that they're making. According to uh, a fund manager, David Hay, who has analyzed all of this, he said the Fed has only gotten interest rate projections right 37% of the time. Barely a third of the time. And as Hay pointed out, they control the interest rates. The people who control the interest rates can only accurately project where interest rates are going 37% of the time. Abysmal. That's the best word for it. So, just consider the March 2021 dot plot. We'll use this for kind of a comparison. In that March 2021 dot plot, the FOMC projected the interest rates would still be zero in 2022. Now, the actual rate in 2022 was 1.75%. So they were eh, a little off. And in 2023, the vast majority of the FOMC members thought rates would still be zero in 2023. Now, some of them were saying, you know, we're going to have maybe one or two, three at the most. The actual rate was over 5%. So, you know, this is just one example of how horribly wrong the Fed has been. I can cite a lot of examples. Remember back in 2006, when the uh, central bankers insisted there was no housing bubble? And then when things started to unravel, and it was clear, yeah, there is a housing bubble, and, and it started to unwind, started to leak air. They promised the problem was contained to subprime. You know, it's not going to affect the, the broader economy. They were saying this is in the middle of 2007, even in 2008. And then in 2008, uh, Ben Bernanke launched quantitative easing after the financial crisis, and he swore it was not debt monetization. He said the Fed would he, it would sell all of the bonds it was buying once the emergency was over as an emergency measure. Today, virtually all of those bonds remain on the Fed's balance sheet. If you go back and you look at the balance sheet trajectory, they started to do a little bit of tightening in, in 2018. Remember, it was on autopilot. Didn't stay on autopilot long because the stock market crashed. And, um, you know, they shed uh, maybe, you know, half a billion dollars or so. They got down to, you know, in the threes. And then we had COVID and then they jacked it all up again. So Bernanke was full of crap. You know, it's almost as if the Fed people are wrong about everything. So, why should we put any stock at all in the most recent dot plot or the Fed's economic projections or any words that come tumbling out of Jerome Powell's mouth? The problem is that the central bankers are disconnected from reality. 
And this is also typical, right? Remember transitory inflation? They're, they're not connected with reality. They're living in some kind of Keynesian fantasy world that looks a lot like um, Alice in Wonderland or something. You know, it's just all this freaky deaky stuff. Maybe they're all on like hallucinogenics or something. Yeah, the point here is there's no reason to believe anything that Powell and company said on Wednesday or to think that their musings will aid in projecting the central bank's next moves. We may have another rate hike next month, and we could have a huge financial crisis in their cutting rates. We don't know. But given the Fed's track record, it's more likely that rates will be at zero by the end of next year, and the U.S. economy will be in the clutches of deep of a deep recession than it is that we're going to have this 1.5% GDP growth and, and uh, you know interest rates still at 5%. The fact is the Fed can afford to be hawkish. They can afford the hawkish talk. They can do this rhetoric as long as the economy is limping along with no obvious hiccups. Now, I've talked a lot about on the, uh, I've talked a lot on this show about all of the things that are smoldering under the surface that kind of make you think, yeah, the economy isn't quite as great as they want you to believe. But as long as the majority of people don't see it, they can keep up this charade. The real test is going to come when something breaks in the economy. And I've said it over and over again. I will continue to say it. If I was a betting man, I would bet dollars to donuts. Something will break with interest rates at 5.5%. It's just a matter of time. You know, interest rates are higher now than they were in June of 2006. Again, that was the peak of the hiking cycle that burst the housing bubble. But there's a difference. The difference between 2006, 2007, 2008, and, and, and today is that we have even more debt and more malinvestments in the economy. You know, one has to wonder why anybody thinks things are going to turn out differently this time. Why, why it's going to be better this time when you actually have worse underlying dynamics. Consider this. The last time interest rates were this high, the national debt was a mere 56 trillion dollars. Today, the debt is over 33 trillion dollars. Yeah, the national debt eclipsed the 33 trillion mark last Friday. And, you know, the federal government is running huge deficits month after month after month. Get this, it took the Biden administration just 3 months to add another 1 trillion dollars to the debt. 3 months, 1 trillion dollars new debt. And remember, it eclipsed $32 trillion back on June 15th. Get this, the government has added $1.58 trillion to the national debt since the end of the fake debt ceiling fight. In just one year, the Biden administration has added $2.16 trillion to the national debt. But yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> the economy's robust. You know, Here's something people aren't really talking about, and that's the fact that all of this government spending is stimulative, right? While monetary policy has gotten a bit tighter, uh, and you could argue that it's kind of removing some of the stimulus, fiscal stimulus, government spending, is flowing. I mean, that spigot is wide open. So when it comes to the inflation fight, you know, this is basically like opening the drain at the bottom of the pool. The, the Fed opened the drain at the bottom of the pool, maybe halfway. So it's draining some of that water out. It's tightening it up, you know. But simultaneously, the government is running water into the pool through like a fire hose, maybe two fire hoses. Of course, 
the government isn't the only thing or only people buried under an avalanche of debt. Corporations levered to the hilt. Uh, there were actually more corporate defaults through the first six months of 2023 than we had in all of 22. Oh, and, and the healthy American consumers that everybody in the media keeps talking about, American consumers healthy, they're spending, right? They've blown through their savings, and they have turned to using credit cards with 20% plus interest rates to make ends meet. That's not healthy, right? It's more like unsustainable. Uh, it's more like ill and dying. And of course, rate hikes have already precipitated a financial crisis. Now, def- Despite the fact that the Fed keeps saying the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient, and, and you know maybe big picture it is, but there are a lot of banks that are in trouble. We've already witnessed three major bank failures. The Fed's bank bailout papered over those problems. It plugged that hole in the dam, but there's still cracks in the dam. In fact, did you know banks are still using the bailout program? True story. Banks borrowed an additional $2.2 billion from the Federal Reserve's bank bailout program in August. Right, This thing was set up in March after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature Bank. That, that was a while back, right? They're still accessing that. They took another $2.2 billion from that bailout program in August. This was on top of the $3.7 billion banks borrowed in July. As of August 31st, there were $108 billion in outstanding loans in the Bank Term Funding Program, BTFP. That's the bailout. That's the highest level since the darn thing was created in March. I'll link to an article in the show notes page with more details on all of this. But this is this is a problem, right? Again, I talked about last week, things smoldering under the surface. The financial crisis is still smoldering under the surface. So all of this to say, rate cuts are coming. No matter how tough Powell talks today or what the rest of his crew throw on a dot plot. Remember, in the long term, it doesn't matter what they say. It's all about what they do. But for now, the markets have decided to believe the Fed's hot air. You know, it's kind of interesting the way this cycles because we've seen this kind of happen before, right? We had uh, a, a pretty hawkish message coming out of the Fed back in June. So we and we saw the same thing. We saw uh, the stock market sell off, we saw gold sell off, we saw all of this kind of market panic lasted for a few days and then they kind of thought about it and go, "Nah, the, the Fed's not serious. They're done, you know. Easy money's coming back." They always go back to that that's kind of the position, right? That's kind of where people are. They think the Fed is done with the inflation fight and that rates are going to come down. And then Powell will march out and he'll get all hawkish and he'll say some stuff and they'll panic and they'll sell off. But then in a few days they're like, "Oh no, the Fed doesn't really mean it." So it'll be interesting to see if we have the if we go back to the Fed doesn't really mean it thing. Uh, again here in a few days. But um, for now, the, the markets are believing the hawkish talk. Um, the uh, Dow dropped 370.46 points on Thursday. That was a 1.08% decline. Uh, the S&P 500 slid 1.64%. And the NASDAQ had the biggest drop, which is typical because it's the tech stocks. There's more speculation there. And the NASDAQ uh, fell by 1.82%. Now, it was interesting because on Wednesday, after... Powell came out after the the minutes, not the minutes, the uh, official statement came out. Markets didn't really react too terribly much. Was, there's a little volatility in there. But 
not a big reaction. It kind of waited till today, or not today, yesterday, Thursday, uh, to kind of decide what they felt. And they decided, well, the Fed's serious. This is hawkish. Uh, so we're going to sell off. Bonds also got clobbered. Uh, U.S. Treasury Treasury yields touched a 10-year peak on midday Thursday. So bond prices falling, bond yields rising. More bad news for the federal government with its $33 trillion debt because the more these Treasury yields go up, the more expensive it becomes for the federal for the federal government to continue borrowing money. The reaction in the gold market wasn't nearly as pronounced as it was in stocks and bonds. Uh, gold was down about 14 bucks at the low point on Thursday, but it rallied later in the day and posted about a $10 loss. So a little bit of a sell-off, but not like you saw in the stock market or in the bond market. Um, and even with the sell-off, gold is still solid, solidly above $1,900 an ounce. You'll remember a few weeks ago, we were down in the 1850s uh, and even kind of testing below that. And that seems to have solidified. So we'll see how it holds up, you know, as we uh, as we move into next week and, and people continue to digest uh, the news out of the central bank and as we get more economic data. Uh, but for now, gold seems to be Pretty solid despite this hawkish talk. And silver uh, was actually up 15 cents on the day on Thursday. Um, and I think that's a little bit of a function of the fact that, you know, you have this, uh, this optimism about the economy that we're not going to have a recession. And since um, silver is, you know, at least partially an industrial metal, a lot of the demand comes from the industrial sector. When you have good economic feelings, uh, people tend to be a little bit more bullish on silver. But always remember, silver ultimately is a monetary metal, and it does track with gold over time. Um, anyway, if people really realized, if they really understood that the Fed hasn't beat inflation, and that they aren't far away from creating even more inflation, they would be gobbling up gold. That's what's happening in Japan right now in the face of rapidly surging uh, prices in their economy. They are dealing with a big increase in price inflation, uh, something that the Japanese haven't had to deal with in a long time. The sudden surge in the demand for gold in Japan, uh, along with devaluation of the yen, has actually driven the price of gold to record highs in yen terms. The uh, Bank of Japan managed to print yen for decades, but, you know, as it always does, monetary inflation has now reared its ugly head in the form of price inflation. Um, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the yen has always been considered a safe haven asset. And while it doesn't have the same clout as the dollar as a reserve currency, uh, the fact that the yen is seen as a safe haven has allowed the Japanese government to get away with printing more than they otherwise would have because there's a pretty healthy demand for yen, or at least there was. And so they were kind of able to get away with this, kick the can down the road. But again, you know, it's inevitable when you create a bunch of money out of thin air, eventually you're going to get the price inflation. And the Japanese are experiencing that now. 
According to the Financial Times, the sudden rush into gold and the rise in retail gold prices in Japan was, quote, part of a rapid shift in household attitudes to risk as years of deflation have given way to rising consumer prices. Um, According to Japan Catalyst Fund economist Jesper Cole, an urgent search for inflation protection after years with little incentive to move out of cash is driving the flight to gold in Japan. He said uh, the fact that gold is a non-yen asset helps, but the trigger is inflation. So there's a huge demand for gold in Japan even with the price at record levels in yen terms because they're dealing with this inflation and they recognize that uh, unlike here in America that you know everybody seems to think that uh, inflation's under control the Japanese are kind of like yeah maybe not so they're buying a bunch of gold despite the fact that they're paying record price for it there's a lesson here you don't want to wait until the crisis is obvious to buy your gold if you're going to do that, you're going to pay a lot more. You don't want to wait. And then all of a sudden, you know, gold's at a record price. It's at $3,000 an ounce. And you're thinking, oh, I need to buy gold. You want to buy gold now when it's $1,900 an ounce, right? You, you don't want to be buying your fire insurance while the fire is spreading through your living room. And in fact, you, know, you can't really. I mean, but you can still buy gold, but you're going to pay more for it. So, Maybe learn the lesson that the Japanese have learned. And, you know, if you're thinking now might be the time, might be the time to buy gold, might be the time to buy silver. You're thinking maybe I do need to look at adding some precious metals to my portfolio or or, uh, adding to my position. I think it's a good time, but don't take my word for it. Talk to a Shift Gold Precious Metal Specialist. Call them at 1-888-GOLD-160. Or, uh, of course, you can email them, info at shiftgold.com. Or go to the Shift Gold uh, website. You can go to the Getting Started tab, and uh, you can chat online uh, with a Precious Metal Specialist. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll not only give you pricing and tell you about products, but they'll also help you see how... Precious metals can fit into your investment strategy. They'll look at where you are in your investment cycle. And uh, they're just fantastic. I highly recommend these guys. You're going to get the best premiums in the industry. And um, and, and you're going to get good service. You're not going to get ripped off. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was uh, doing business with one of Shift Gold's competitors. And uh, it has turned into a, a huge fiasco for him. So, um, you know... You can trust the shift gold people is what I'm saying. So, you know, call them today. You got nothing to lose, right? So with that, I'm going to call that a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on all of the stories that I've talked about today and more. And, of course, keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shiftgold.com slash news. And uh, if you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to this podcast over at Apple Podcast, at Google Podcast, Shift Gold YouTube channel. Uh, you'll find links to all of this stuff and, as well as our show, social media channels uh, over on the show notes page. You can email me, mharry at shiftgold.com. Love to hear from folks. And uh, I'm done. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and I will talk to you again next Friday.